welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith's weekly sermon podcast. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Coming up, a sermon from our series, Ecclesiastes, Life Under the Sun. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton. Let's look together at Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's go to him in prayer. Almighty God and most merciful Father, we humbly submit ourselves, fall down before your majesty, Asking you from the bottom of our hearts that the seed of your word now sown among us may take such deep root that neither the burning heat of persecution cause it to wither, nor the thorny cares of this life choke it, but that as seed sown in good ground, it may bring forth thirty, sixty, or a hundredfold as your heavenly wisdom has appointed. Through Christ our Savior. Amen. Now, the reason why I drew your attention to thinking about a theme as I read through uh, chapter 4 is this. 
when you approach chapter 4, it can seem like, as you read it, like it's just an assortment of unrelated topics. But upon closer inspection, we see the repetition of an introductory phrase that we saw in the last chapter as well, and it's that phrase of better than, better than. And so Solomon is clearly building his argument, which he carried forward from the previous chapter, and we're going to see him carry forward all the way through the entire book. But this chapter, as short as it is, is not merely a building block. In fact, it has a theme. In fact, I would argue that it is a thematic treatise. It is an important message for us, and it's an important message for us, especially in the church today and in this church today. To draw out this theme, let me remind you of God's assessment going all the way back to Genesis and the creation of man. Man alone. For God said, it is not good for man to be alone. And so God created Eve. Praise be to God. And the two became one. Enjoying companionship. Enjoying, think about this, without sin in the world and Enjoying an extraordinary union together according to God's design. But they sinned. Not divorcing their union, but plaguing their companionship and their subsequent relationships. It affected their marriage, it affected their children, it affected their family, it affected the church, it affected the world. But despite the catastrophe and consequences of the fall, it's still not good for man to be alone. We were made for community. And this is no more relevant than in the church. In fact, the New Testament uses that Greek word consistently of koinonia, which we translated in English as fellowship. It's essential to who the church is. In fact, if you think with me about your New Testament, the thrust of the Apostle Paul's argument in the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians is that the church is one body, but it's made up of many parts living together in the love of Christ. There is no church of one. And I want to repeat that in our era of individualism, in our era of technology that could lead us to think that somehow we do not need the church. The church is integral to what God is doing. We were not created to be islands. We were not redeemed to be isolated. But rather, we are redeemed as the church to be together in community, to be in community and fellowship. Of course, we are inundated with examples of the erosion of God-given community. And sometimes it can be in the tragic result of oppression, where people are not treated as people, but as property. Other times, it's the self-induced result of envy, where people are not treated as people, 
but as tools to be used. But in Christ, we enjoy a tie that binds. That binds us together in community. And yes, in friendship. And so I want to look at this first theme with the opening verses of chapter 4. And this first theme is when people are not people, but when people are property. When people are treated as property. And we see in the opening verses that Solomon is dealing with oppression. Now, to be clear, this is, a friend of mine calls it, uh, definition fatigue. This is a word in our culture that has almost lost meaning because oppression is used so much. You know, this, the old saying, if, if everything is oppression, then nothing is oppression. So we need to be careful here. We need to understand this word that's translated from the Hebrew into English as oppression. We need to understand it in its context And in its context, we see that Solomon uses this Hebrew word in three different forms. He uses it with repetition. And as he uses it with repetition, that means significance. That means meaning. That should, as good Bible students, that should tell us, aha, this means something. If you look at verse 1, we're told that all the oppressions of the oppressed are by their oppressors. Sounds oppressive, doesn't it? Well, it should. That's the point of the repetition. But what does Solomon mean by this word that's translated oppression? We find elsewhere in Scripture examples of what Solomon describes. For example, in Leviticus, the Israelites are warned about fraud and theft of the vulnerable. Or, for example, in Ezekiel, we see the financial manipulation an unjust prophet of the powerful over the poor. Specifically, he lists the widow and the orphan and the stranger. It's, according to Jeremiah, it's the loss of someone's rights, the lacking of true justice within a society. Such examples lead one commentator to define it, and I think this is a very helpful definition. He defines oppression as it is used here as, quote, Accumulation, seeking after profit without regard to the nature, needs, and rights of other people. I want to repeat that. I think that is well defined. Oppression is the accumulation that is seeking after profit without regard to the nature, needs, and rights of other people. In other words, to the oppressor, the oppressor sees people as property. Bought and sold, used and disposed of, and so on. Now, Solomon is not alone in what he sees. Because you see it too. Because as I have defined it here, you see it in the world in which we live. And you know exactly what it is. Perhaps it's the widow who is swindled out of her savings by a huckster. Perhaps... It's the child that we read about who has been sold into sex slavery. Perhaps it's the victims that Dwight Eisenhower saw in the Holocaust. Modern examples run the gamut. It could be mild oppression or like the Holocaust, severe oppression. 
reminds us that there is no end to the wicked schemes of the human heart. The human heart is extraordinary in devising its wicked schemes. But with Solomon's description of the oppression of what he saw, that's not all he saw. And I think sometimes when we're reading this, as awful as oppression is, and it is awful, but sometimes we miss some of the subtle cues of what he's teaching us and how he's going to tie it in a couple of verses later, and that is this, and don't miss it. Look with me. And behold, the oppressed had no one to comfort them. And he repeats it. Again, for emphasis, there was not one to comfort them. In other words, what Solomon is saying is, is that the oppressed are alone. They're even isolated, contributing to their suffering. And I was thinking about this as I was studying this passage, and I thought, even in the tragedy that Job encountered, and even though his friends were less than helpful at times, the account of Job starts by his friends just sitting with him in silence. Yes, he suffered, but he didn't suffer alone. And Solomon says, you know what's worse than oppression? Being oppressed alone with no one else. Solomon thinks that death would be better than that. Or even better to have never been born at all. Now, what Solomon is doing here is he is using hyperbole. He's not anti-life. He's not pro-suicide. That is ridiculous. What Solomon is doing is he is using hyperbole to emphasize how awful this is. To be suffering and to be left all alone. There is something worse than oppression. And such a thought should grip us. That's why he's using hyperbole here. It should grip us. Sparking our compassion and mobilizing us to be present in the lives of others. To be present in the lives of those who have no friend. To be present in the lives of those who are alone. For our Lord Jesus Christ had compassion on the afflicted. In fact, in fact Matthew says that they, there were hordes of people who were harassed and helpless and they were like sheep without a shepherd. And our Lord Jesus came to them and He was with them. You think about that in terms of just our word Emmanuel and the incarnation of Christ. He became man. He became one of us. And He dwelled among us. John says at the very beginning of 1 John, we have seen Him and we've touched Him and we've been around Him. Of course, I'm paraphrasing here. But all of this John is saying, He was physically present in our lives and in His name. Let us do the same, even if it simply means our silent presence. Perhaps, as Paul puts it in Romans, weeping with those who weep, comforting those who need you, comforting those who need me. And so Solomon begins with this introduction, and he says there are people that treat people 
as property. Then he shifts gears, although carrying a similar theme, and he says, but there's also people that treat people like tools. Like tools. And I thought, how different God's economy is from man's. God's economy is one of giving. Man's economy is one of greed. In the 1987 movie, Wall Street, the character Gordon Gecko. some of you are having to think back now, aren't you? Gordon Gecko. you know, he had the slick hairdo, the fancy suit, you remember this. Gordon Gecko was giving a speech in that movie, and he says this, quote, Greed is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all its forms. Greed for life, for money, for love. Knowledge has marked the upward surge of mankind. <laughs> and I was looking that quote up and I thought, I really want, I don't know who the, the, the script writer was, but I really wonder if he or she read Ecclesiastes. I really do. Because that's in essence what Solomon sees. He says, all toil... And all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Gordon Gecko. Though God gave man the blessing of work. God gave him the blessing of working and cultivating the garden. Our sinful nature pitted Cain in his jealousy against Abel. The fittest shall survive. In man's economy, there are no brothers. There are no sisters. Only winners and losers. And Abel lost. There are, of course, different forms of envy and greed. There's the Gordon Gecko type. But there are also other forms. Some conquest and conquer. But others... Drop out. Disappear. Latching on like leeches to an economy in which they contribute nothing. I was reminded of a friend of mine who used to work at a homeless shelter. And he was schooling me when we first planted this church and giving me advice of how to deal with the homeless in our community and so forth. And he said, John, he said, here's what I have found. I have found that there are four types of people at a homeless shelter. There are the mentally ill there are the truly destitute, there are the abused, and then there's the dropout. And he said, the first three need our help. The fourth need to go get a job. Hmm. Solomon says, the dropout folds his hands. It's an idiom, meaning... They don't use their hands to work. They're just folded, letting everybody else do the work around them. But sometimes our hands may be open, maybe even both of our hands, but we fill them with greed-induced strife. Have you ever wanted something so badly that you ran over people to get it? Have you ever wanted something in your heart that drove you so strongly 
that now when you look back, you go, oh, how did I not see that? I used people like a bunch of tools to get what I wanted. Solomon says that he knew a man so consumed with growing his wealth that it consumed him. He would get wealth and it wasn't enough. He was never satisfied and he wanted more and he wanted more and he wanted more. But the worst part of it, Solomon says, is that he kept on and kept on, greedy for gain, greedy for gain. And Solomon says, but he didn't have anybody to share it with. And there was nobody that was going to inherit it when he was gone. The greatest gift that that man had was no gift at all. Like the king in Solomon's concluding parable, the parable at the end of our passage today, he rose from rags to riches, didn't he? And it's, it's like a, a brief parable of like the quote-unquote American dream. The boy grows up and he becomes this wealthy and powerful king. And then what? Well, well, well nothing. What is the legacy of wealth and power? Well, it's less than you think. In fact, Solomon says, those who come later will not rejoice in it regarding that king. Those who come later, that king, he rose from rags to riches. He thought he was everything. He thought he was so important. He was so full of himself. And Solomon says, and then no one remembered him. No one cared. Brothers and sisters in Christ, enjoy the fellowship of the church. Enjoy your friends and beware of envy. Because envy of others will drive you to places you never thought possible. Envy of others will give you irrational thoughts and cause you to do things that you would never do, justified only in your envy-consumed mind. And it will overwhelm you, and everyone will see it. Except you. If your reward is two handfuls of toil and strive, I ask you, what is your gain? Far better is contentment. One handful with quiet. Jesus says, take care and be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And so we see in these verses that the dropout, the folder of hands, and Gordon Gecko are alike in this. They see people as tools to be used or manipulated rather than people to be loved and served. And that is a tragedy. But thankfully Solomon doesn't leave us there, does he? Because he shows us that when we treat people as friends, rather than as property or tools, there is blessing in friendship. In his commentary on Ecclesiastes, Jeffrey Myers summarizes the first 12 verses of this passage and 
personally, I like, I like this. He does it in the form of a mathematical equation. He says, when you look at these first 12 verses, in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4, 0 is better than 1. Then, in verses 4 through 6, we read that 1 is better than 2. Climactically, in verses 7 through 12, we find that 2 are better than 1. And I think that is a brilliant summary. It's a creative way of seeing the thread of friendship that weaves its way through this passage. Two are really better than one. In time of need, whether cold or threat. But even better is the threefold cord of community. We were not created to live alone, but living in community together. And that's why Christian community is so important. And let me be clear, that is why the devil loves to work his way into the church and seeks to create divisiveness and to break down community, to break down fellowship, to break down friendship. The body of Christ, Paul says, does not consist of one member, but many. It would be absurd for the eye to say to the hand, or the head to say to the foot, I have no need of you. And yet, and yet, envy slithers its way in, even into the church, leading to calloused hearts, unforgiving spirits, and wills bent on divisiveness. And I have seen it with my own eyes. I've seen all three of these and the embodied result. And the result is misery. Misery. The person who is envious, the one who would stir up strife in the church is absolutely, completely miserable in themselves. And it's sad and it's tragic, but worse, and I think this really is the worst part. The envious person misses the blessing that God gives in community with one another. We are blessed, and I hope you know this. I hope you know what kind of extraordinary community that we have here. And if you're not a member here yet, come be a member now. And they'll tell you. You walk up and down, aisle after aisle. As my mother likes to say, there is a sweet, sweet spirit in this place. I think she stole it from somebody. <laughs> I am blessed to call you not only brothers and sisters, but friends. Sydney said, I have never known the depth of relationship until this church. I am a blessed man because I know I don't toil alone. I am a blessed man because I know that if I fall, <laughs> there'll be so many of you there to pick me up because you have before. I'm a blessed man because I know that you care for my well-being. I am a blessed pastor. I'm a blessed man because I know that you will take care of me. And I'm not alone. Because you could say the same thing, couldn't you? For in Christ we are not oppressed, 
But we are comforted in one another. We're not envious of one another, but we are content. We are not alone, but we live in community. But the community that we enjoy is not the product of our efforts. And let me tell you, it ain't because of the pastor. It is because of the love of God in Christ. That's it. And that's all it is. The tie that binds is the love of Christ. And His Spirit manifesting that fellowship among us. My kids for Father's Day got me a shirt that said, I love coffee and gardening and maybe three people. (laughs) And we we laughed. And they all laughed. And I stopped laughing and they're still laughing. (laughs) But it's ironic humor. Because as cantankerous as I can be, I love you. And I am loved by you. And I am grateful, and you are grateful, because God has built His church not based on a person, not based on a session, not even blessing us in our deacons. And there's some good dudes. God has blessed us through the presence of His Holy Spirit. And He continues to build that week after week, day after day, by the power of His Spirit working in us. When asked what the greatest commandment is, Jesus gave not one answer, but two. And I will remind you that the answer that our Lord Jesus gave was relational. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We relate to God in love. We relate as the people of God in love. Not by willpower, not by works, but by the grace of God in Christ. What can make a bitter person who harbors anger towards someone else forgive? That's a tough act. The love of God in Christ. What can heal hurt? What can mend relationships that we thought impossible to mend? What can build them back even stronger? The love of God in Christ. What can turn a church full of sinners like you people into a fellowship of friends? The love of God in Christ. And so the friendship of fellowship that we enjoy is not of us, but from Him, through Him, For Him. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, You have been so good to us. You have taught us over the years to be dependent upon You. And you have provided for us in so many different ways, specifically the sweet fellowship that we do enjoy. And so we rejoice in this, but we also give praise to you. We also pray that you would put upon our hearts those within our world that we may reach out. Perhaps we know someone or a place where we may reach out to the oppressed and the lonely and the afflicted 
that we may come alongside and be a friend. We pray that You would keep us from looking at people as merely property or tools or some form of getting our way. And keep us, oh God, please keep us from envy of others. But oh God, may we look to the beauty of Your Gospel that we are sinners saved only by Your grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who has indwelled us by His Spirit, who has freed us from the bondage of sin and has given us a right fellowship in Him as His church. Oh God, bless Your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.